I'm turning this morning to Ephesians chapter number 6, Ephesians chapter number 6, and we'll begin reading here in just a moment in verse number 10. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning there in verse number 10. Uh, This final chapter of the book of Ephesians, uh, this uh, by my count is message number 50 from this particular book. So we've been in the book of Ephesians almost an entire year. And I want to draw your attention to what the Apostle Paul uh, writes in verses 10 and 11. We'll just read these first two verses to get the context and the subject for this morning. Paul writes in verse 10 of Ephesians 6, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Our subject this morning is that phrase that Paul uses in verse 11, the whole armor of God. Uh, It is a recognition of the writing of Paul that Paul throughout this entire epistle has been very deliberate in how he has written. He's been very deliberate in the illustrations. We began the the book uh, all about beginning the doctrinal aspects of Ephesians, which is Ephesians 1 through 4. And verses or chapters five and six being primarily the practical and application portion of the letter. And as we come to this final section, anytime you come to the end of a book, uh, we have to be careful that we don't treat these as kind of just the end, uh, kind of as a final afterthought. That there's really nothing of real substance here. It's the exact opposite. Uh, this passage, just like every other passage in Scripture, is crucial for understanding. And more specifically, in the practical realm, this passage of the whole armor of God is crucial to how to understand a believer's life. Oftentimes, the believer's life is portrayed uh, in the average, again, not to pick on the average Christian bookstore, but it's portrayed in the Christian bookstore as this life of peace and tranquility and that nothing ever goes wrong. And if you just obey God, you'll never have any trials and trouble. Those who are in Christ know that the exact opposite is the case, that life as a Christian, as a believer in a world that does not uh, appreciate your Savior, it's anything but peace and tranquility. It's actually described as a war. Paul would not use the word armor if he was not concerned at a war, and he certainly wouldn't use the word whole. Notice Paul doesn't say put on the armor of God, put on pieces of the armor of God. He says put on the whole armor of God. That means every piece of armor is going to be required for you to live a life as a believer in this world. Paul is really, in these last verses, he is giving us a survey of the entire message of Ephesians. And he's given us this this overriding theme of a soldier standing in armor. Now, I will tell you, I'm going to be very careful today to not spend a lot of time, and many of you maybe this approach has been taken, and I'm not saying this is wrong. I'm not going to spend a lot of time describing each piece of armor about what I think it looked like, how much it covered, what it would have looked like on the average soldier. But what I am going to do through Scripture is show you why each piece of armor is being recommended. In other words, he uses a piece of armor to describe something taking place. I'm more concerned about the attacker than I am so much about what each piece of armor looked like. I've, I've sat through sermons about 
uh, full sermons about the description of the shield of faith, what the shield of faith would have looked like. Um, there, there is some word picture here. There is some word association to be given here. But I want you to see that what Paul, the emphasis is not on the actual armor itself, what it looks like, but the reason why the armor matters. So remember, Paul has been reminding people, the believers, who they are. We've talked about husbands and wives. We've talked about uh, parents and children. We've talked about masters and servants. He's reminded them, here's what your responsibilities are. And he uses the word, finally. Finally is always a word that tells us that we're reaching the end of something. We're reaching the conclusion of something. We come to this point with the vital desire to understand the nature of our opposition. We need to take seriously, as we talked about in Bible study this morning, there is a very real devil and there is a very real war that is going on in this world. It is not hypothetical. It's not mythical. It's not a fairy tale. It is real and it is obvious and it is apparent in the life of a believer. It is opposition. The devil himself is a real and powerful enemy. We know today that the devil is accounted for or in, in movies and in books as something that's not really serious. We shouldn't really even, he's no real worry. The devil is portrayed as this, this red creature with horns and a pitchfork, and we simply have turned it into some kind of a, a fairy tale idea. The devil is very real. And I can assure you, he's not red with horns and a, pitch, and a, and a pitchfork and a tail. That's not what he, how he's described at all. As a matter of fact, it's frightening that he, he's described it as being able to transform himself into an angel of light, which to me, folks, is absolutely terrifying to think about. Light could be mistaken for something good when actually it's the devil disguised. He's not going to play fair. And he's not going to play according to our rules. It is the foolish Christian that stands up and says, I can fight against the devil myself. I don't need the whole armor of God. All I need is my strength. You need the whole armor of God to be able to withstand what the devil is throwing at you. What Paul's going to teach us is you are not fighting a battle against flesh and blood. I don't care how big of a guy you are. I don't care how big of a lady you are. I don't care how strong or powerful you think you are. That's not what kind of war this is. I don't care what kind of physical weaponry you have. That's not what kind of war this is. This is a war not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. So Paul, as he reminds them of not only the nature of their opposition, he's reminding them of their doctrine of sanctification. We learned about that also in Bible study this morning. So we got to think about this. Any teaching that brings the Christian life down to something sentimental is missing the point. The Christian life is not about sentiment. The Christian life is not about sentimental, emotional, feel good all the time. Christianity is actually a battle. It's an, it's an absolute war. And there are some of our brethren around the world who experience this war every single day. A war that is not, it looks like it's being carried out by physical opposition, but the war is actually taking place in the spiritual realm. A lot of times the outward, the outward opposition is just a symptom of spiritual warfare at work. 
So Christianity is not, first and foremost, sentimental. Oftentimes, the sentimental Christianity is often a sign or the evidence that you might be involved in a cult. I want you to think about that for a few minutes. You might be involved in a cult if it's all about sentimentality. The struggle that Paul writes about here is a waged war. If I was to tell you that within minutes you were going to be under attack by a physical army, I can almost assure you, you would take steps to be ready. All of us would, whatever steps that mean. But yet when we talk about spiritual warfare, Christians tend to push this aside and say, I don't need to be prepared for the spiritual warfare. I've got too many physical battles in front of me. You need to be more concerned about the spiritual warfare than the physical warfare that's going on in your life. Spiritual warfare is what Paul is talking about. He doesn't call it a discussion group. He doesn't call it a let's express ideas and share ideas of what we think works. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. That was previously, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Right there, he totally undoes anything about relying on yourself. There's nothing you can do to fight this battle apart from God. So this begins the conclusion of Paul's exhortation on the duties of believers towards others. But he addresses them by this statement, finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord. Three things I want us to think about before we even begin in the exposition. Number one, the things that Paul commands here are impossible to perform without God's strength and grace. The things that Paul is going to tell us we must do are impossible to do without God's grace and God's strength. Nowhere in here is Paul going to say, gird up yourself, strengthen yourself, set yourself. He's going to say you need to rely on God's strength and God's grace. Secondly, we must have God's strength and power to overcome our, own, overcome our enemies, the flesh, and the devil. Okay, We have to have his strength. You, it's impossible to perform without God's strength and grace. And thirdly, though we are weak, we can do nothing of ourselves. Always remember, God's grace is sufficient. God's grace being sufficient is not just when there's a thorn in the flesh. God's grace is also sufficient in the spiritual warfare realm. See, we like to think about God's grace being sufficient when we're afflicted with an illness, when we're afflicted with something. But you know, God's grace is also sufficient for this battle that Paul's writing about. So let's look at these verses. In verse 10, Paul concludes here in verse 10 by giving this exhortation. This exhortation in verse 10 is reminding them to be ready to fight constantly. Be ready to fight trusting in spiritual weapons, not in physical prowess. To be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. He's encouraging them and reminding them that this battle is not to end until the enemies are completely gone. What does that tell us? That means the spiritual warfare will not end in this life until Christ comes again or he takes you home. There will never be a moment in the Christian's life where spiritual warfare is not occurring. I want you to hear me, hear me well. You are under constant attack every single day. Satan does not take a rest, although he's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at the same time. The devil and his angels are always at work. They are not taking a break. 
Just because you don't feel spiritual warfare every single moment doesn't mean that the warfare isn't there. There are lulls even in a physical military battle where it seems quiet, it seems calm. You can read even out throughout history, read about some of the accounts uh, of what, what's happened in the Middle East over time where, where military installations have sat and there's been nothing happening, nothing happening, nothing happening, and then suddenly there's a rocket attack that comes out of nowhere. Spiritual warfare doesn't stop. And that's what Paul is, that's why he's saying, be strong in the Lord. And he warns them that they need to take up the armor of God. Verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against, that's opposition, the wiles of the devil. Wiles are tricks. Uh, they, are, uh, they are not just tricks, but they're also things that are done with force. Folks, here's the reality. The devil doesn't just attack you by force. Sometimes he attacks you by fraud. Sometimes it's deceit that is his greatest tool. It's his greatest weapon. The devil is a liar. He has been, he always will be. Even when he tries to quote scripture, he lies about what the scripture actually means. The amount of spiritual warfare that goes on even in a church our size. Someone might say, well, what a church like this, we don't have to worry about spiritual warfare. They're no threat. If you're a believer, you are under spiritual warfare. And this church is under just as much spiritual warfare as the biggest church in the, in the, in the biggest part of the world. Don't think the size of your church has anything to do with spiritual warfare because it doesn't. Spiritual warfare is anywhere there's a believer. Anywhere there's a believer. The devil sometimes comes by force. He comes by surprise. Sometimes he comes to overcome you. Sometimes he comes just to disrupt you. What Paul is saying is never, ever, ever go out without the whole armor of God on. That means you don't have a single moment you can actually let your guard down. You can't ever just say, you know what, this is a safe time. You can never tell where the devil is. You can never tell where the devil's demons are. You can never tell. He's not omnipresent, but nobody knows where he is right now. And he is somewhere in reality, not in mythology. He himself is actually somewhere But notice what Paul says. He goes on in verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against. There's that word against again. That's opposition. This war has never been against flesh and blood. You you could never take out the devil and his attacks by taking out flesh and blood. Because that's not where the battle is. The battle is against principalities... Notice how many times the word against is used in these verses. Against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. There's where the real battle is, is in verse 12. Not against flesh and blood, but rather against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness. He declares that our chiefest and strongest enemies are not able to be seen. You cannot see the enemy that is attacking you. You've never seen him. Now, I know people talk about weird dreams they have, and that's for another day. But you've never seen the enemy. Just like you've never seen Jesus Christ Himself standing at your bedside. You maybe had a dream, but you didn't see Him because He's not here. He's at the right hand of the Father. But these enemies are invisible. 
They cannot be seen with the eye. Your chief conflict, folks, this is one of the great deceptions of the devil. Our chief conflict is not with men and people. It isn't. And we know man, because of his sin nature, will do bad things. But that's not where the conflict truly resides. The church has been trying to fight this conflict against men and women who are anti-God and they're missing the point that this battle is not against people. This battle is against the devil and his demons which are invisible and you can't fight them with physical weaponry. While we're worried about the conflict with man, the church has left itself open to the reality of the spiritual attacks of the devil. While we're preoccupied with what man can do to us, which the Bible says itself, don't fear what man can do to you. But fear Him, God who has the power over death and life and has the power over the soul. My conflict is not with man. You say, but man's doing all these sinful things. Yes, but there's a devil behind it. There's demonic forces behind it. Men are nothing more than frail and brittle. Again, I don't care how big the guy is. He's frail. He's, he, he cannot withstand everything. But these are described as wiles. Spiritual wiles. These are thousands and thousands of times more mighty than any flesh that will ever stand before us. Now the words principalities, people often ask this question, principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, what are those? Those are actually names of what we'll refer to as demonic angels or demonic representatives. When you see the word principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness, these are names that Paul, through the inspiration of the Spirit, is naming who they are. So when I talk about a principality, I'm giving a name to it. When I talk about a ruler of the darkness, I'm giving it a name. But their name also gives the effect in what they do. So notice, again, against principalities. Powers against the rulers of the darkness, against spiritual wickedness in high places. You can see how each one of these titles... They have a role. Let me give you something very, very hopeful today. All of this is going to be hopeful, but let me give you really something hopeful. Stop right here. These demons, this spiritual warfare, as frightening as this is, even the demons cannot act outside of the providence and sovereignty of God. And I want you to grab onto that and I want you to hold onto that tight. Because don't think for a minute that these demonic angels are acting outside of the sovereignty of God. When the devil wanted to attack Job, he could not do anything to Job until he came and asked Almighty God permission to do it. And God specifically says, you can do this, 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 and this, but you will not take his life. This spiritual warfare, we already know the outcome. We know that Jesus Christ ultimately has already gained the victory. We know that this is not, the battle is not up in the air. You listen to some churches and you think, we might actually lose this thing. I'm telling you this morning, we're not going to lose this thing because of the merits of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. 
But to think that you're not going to go through times of real spiritual warfare, you are being willingly ignorant and you are going to be surprised. And I don't want you to be surprised. Paul, as a result, says in verse 13, wherefore, or as a result of this, take unto you the whole armor of God. He's now said that phrase twice, the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand. Twice he has said able to stand or able to withstand in the evil day, notice, and having done all to stand. Again, Paul reminds us that the only way these enemies are put away or put to flight are with the armor of God. Nowhere does Paul say, get stronger yourself and resist the devil and he will flee. Both times, and able to stand and withstand, what has Paul said? Put on the whole armor of God. Now, does Paul mean that you're going to go home to your closet and pull out your armor? No, you don't have armor at home that's going to do a thing. And quite frankly, and I'm not trying to be irreverent, you're just going to look foolish if you walk out town with your armor on. I mean, you are going to look foolish. People are going to say, what are you doing? And they're going to say, I put on the whole armor of God to be able to withstand. That is not what he's talking about. This whole armor of God that he's referring to, and that's why I'm not spending a lot of time and didn't bring a bunch of props here and show you what the shield of faith, what the shield looks like and what the armor looks like, what the helmet looks like. It doesn't matter. He's not talking about physical armor. But what he is telling us is that the armor of God is what the key is to withstanding. This armor of God has to do with not only what the Word of God is, but has to do with our own life. It has to do with our knowledge of the Gospel. It has to do with our faith. But primarily, the armor of God is the Word of God. Folks, if you come to me and you want some help, you don't want help from me. You want help from God's Word. You don't want my opinion. You don't need my opinion. You need what God's Word says. Now, that doesn't go over well in counseling because people don't like that. I, I want to know what you think. No, you don't want to know what I think because my, think my thinking is flawed. My thinking will bring me to begin. My feelings will always get in the way. But the Word of God never falters. It doesn't fail. It, it covers every aspect of life. There is not a situation in this world that you're going to face that the Bible does not have an answer for. You may not like the answer, but it's there. That is your armor. Every piece of armor represents a part of the Word of God. Our hope, our faith, our doctrine, the Gospel. That's what Paul's talking about here. It is a daily putting on of this armor. It's a daily, earnestly, diligently praying for one another. Do you know how important it is that the church remains strong and healthy? The last two years has taught us a lot of things, and I'm not going to get into all that, but I want you to know it has revealed a lot as well. It's revealed more than any other event could have revealed, I believe. It truly has revealed whether or not churches are really where they're going to stand and what they're going to stand upon. Folks, th this nation, it needs the church, the true church, to be healthy. It needs the true church 
to be standing for what's true, and it needs the true church to be standing in the face, but also understanding we're not fighting against people. We're fighting against principalities and powers. Stop fighting man and realize this is a spiritual battle. This is not a physical battle. You are not going to remove spiritual influence by just taking out people and removing them. Somehow the church has started to think, well, maybe the way that we do all this, maybe the way we fight the devil is through legislation. How foolish can the church get? Is that where you think our hope is? No, our hope is in the whole armor of God. Our hope is in the reality that everything God has said has happened or will happen. And knowing for certain that the devil is already a defeated foe. The health of the church is also going to be marked by people who are steadfast and faithful for the gospel. People who are not afraid, they're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul made that statement back in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16 about the time. We, we, we read through that. He said, redeeming the time because the days are evil. You don't have time to wait to tomorrow to decide, you know what, I think I'll put the whole armor of God on today. And again, quit looking at this as going to the closet and putting something on. But Paul does give us these visual pictures. Verse 14, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Now the, the, the belt of truth, or the belt that holds it up, is not as important as what he says is, it's about truth. We all know this. Truth in our society is relative. Now, that's not true, but that's what society says. What's true for you may not be true for me. No, true is true. There are things that are so, no matter how you try to redefine them. No matter what you try to brainwash, with me, brainwash me with, you're not going to change me to believe your way. And you're not going to get me to acknowledge your way if it's a violation of the truth. I'm just not going to do it. And you say, well, that's just, you're just narrow-minded and prejudiced. No, there's truth, and then there's truth. And truth is always right. And he said, this is what this, this the, your, your loins are to be girded with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness. This belt of truth is really what holds up all the armor. If you were to try to look at this from a picture of a soldier wearing armor, the belt holds everything up. But we're to guard that truth with the knowledge, the breastplate of righteousness. We're to guard the truth with our relationship and our acceptability before God. What we are standing for, the truth, is right and holy. When he talks about righteousness, whose righteousness? Not your own. It's the righteousness of Christ. Folks, what is the truth? The truth is that I am nothing before a holy God without the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I don't care how much I give. I don't know how, how nice I am to people. What a moral person I think I am. If you do not have the righteousness of Christ imputed into you, you are not acceptable before God. That is the standard, whether man likes it or not. All of this armor doesn't matter if there's no righteousness of Christ. Verse 15, Paul says, And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. It's interesting that he talks about the feet and he talks about preparation. 
Paul understood what it was to be called to the gospel. But why does Paul use the term the gospel of peace? We understand that the gospel is the gospel of peace because we are called by God himself to take that gospel to even the most dangerous of enemies. The gospel was not just meant for people who are moderately good. The gospel was not just meant for people who show outward signs of not being so rough. You realize that the gospel message is to go out even to the enemies. We've learned on Wednesday nights about how we're to love our enemies. Not just like them, love our enemies. One of the greatest ways we love our enemies is by giving them the truth of the gospel. One of the greatest things that we can do is to go prepared with the doctrine of the gospel. Everywhere the gospel goes, the gospel, the God of peace is with that person that goes. Verse 16, above all, it's interesting, Paul uses this phrase, above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. This shield of faith is what's needed to protect the armor and to protect yourself. But notice Paul says not only the fiery darts of the wicked, but also those wicked men who may throw those darts at you, right? But what is Paul saying? Nothing can quench those fiery darts but the shield of faith. Now there's a reference here to faith in general. The natural idea which is on the surface here is that faith is like a shield. It is our faith that protects us against attack. The shield, again, this is one I'll give you a little bit of an illustration of. The shield that Paul had in mind was not one of these uh, little tiny shields that you just kind of held in front of you. The shield he had in mind was a shield that was often as tall as the person. And the person, when they would use that shield, when they were under attack, they would stand behind that shield and it would envelop them around, all the way around the sides. Th that was a complete shielding of all the other pieces of armor. And the idea here is that that's what faith is. Faith is that shield which is enveloping the entirety of the man. That whatever fiery dart is put at him, whatever is sent that way, faith protects the whole person. When a temptation comes into our lives to love the world more than Christ itself, it's our faith that reminds us that we are indeed the people of God and we are in Christ. It's why we esteem as Moses esteem the, 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 the reproach of Christ more than the greatest riches he could have ever had. It's his faith that said, listen, I'll turn away from all the riches of the world and I'd rather have Christ. Or would you rather have Christ than anything today? Christ, in fact, is the righteousness. Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. Do you realize when faith is being protected, when faith is protecting the whole armor of God, anytime the enemy tries to make a move, it is Christ Himself, the faith we have through Jesus Christ alone, that protects us. You can never make too much about Christ. 
I always worry about the believer in the church that says you talk about Christ way too much. There's something very wrong. Something very wrong when you say you talk about Christ too much. It happens more than you know. You hear believers who profess to know Christ and they say, listen, we don't need to know about this. We're already saved. We're already in the kingdom of God. There's nothing the believer wants to hear more than over and over and over again what the gospel did for them. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This helmet, of course, we understand that helmet, a piece of armor for the head, The helmet is described as a hope of salvation in Christ alone. It's the the salvation of which Christ himself is the author and finisher. And then the sword. There's no sword like the Word of God. We know that the Bible describes the sword as that which divides asunder the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. You realize that nothing and nobody can resist the Word of God if we wield the Word of God properly. Folks, you can't mishandle God's Word and expect to quench the fiery darts. There's a great mishandling of the Word of God that has has happened at, at an alarming rate, especially over the last hundred years where people who are not qualified to handle the Word of God are mishandling it. And they're handling it in a way that appeals to the emotions and the flesh of people, and that's what's leading to the problems. This Word of God, if it's wielded right, it always accomplishes. But then Paul also uses praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. Paul says, don't forget about praying. But notice he doesn't just say pray. He says praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. You realize all prayer that's being offered apart from the Spirit of God is not a prayer at all. The prayer in the Spirit. The prayers that proceed from the Holy Spirit. What Paul talked about in the book of Romans about with with groanings which cannot be uttered. Paul takes all of these thoughts and he says and he introduces himself not into the equation for self-exaltation. But notice what he says, and for me, as of all that he has said here, that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Paul here directs us that within the armor of God and within the withstanding the wiles of the devil, pray for the ministers of the gospel that not only will God open up these effectual doors for preaching, but that He gives those ministers boldness to preach and to teach The mystery of the gospel is very very clear here, folks. You cannot understand the mystery of the gospel apart from the Holy Spirit of God. And Paul says, pray that utterance would be given to me that I would do this boldly. You know, it's one thing to feel safe, to feel protected. It's another thing to actually boldly and courageously go and live that way. 
Like you could leave here today and say, you know, I really was encouraged at church today about the whole armor of God. That's not the hard part. The hard part is when the attack starts. The hard part is, will I rely on the word of God or will I rely on what my feelings are telling me? Folks, I'm telling you, there is nothing that will get a Christian more in trouble than how you feel. And when it begins, often conversations that are Christian between brothers and sisters in Christ, if the conversation begins, I feel like you're already started on the wrong path. Because your feelings, again, can be deceptive. Now, God gave us feelings. They're not always wrong, but be very careful about them. What I feel and what's true is often two different things. And then Paul makes this statement. He says, For which I am an ambassador in bonds. Therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Imagine this. Paul identifies himself as an ambassador in bonds. He's an ambassador who is locked in a prison, and yet here he's being treated and understood that he's a messenger from the court of heaven. He says, pray that I would be the ambassador that I need to be. Pray that I would speak boldly as I ought to speak. There's an application for every one of us today. An ambassador. An ambassador is one who goes out and represents his master. And then Paul, as he often does at the end of these letters, he often identifies individuals. And in this letter, he identifies this one person. He says in verse 21, but that ye may also may know my affairs and how I do, Tychius, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that ye might know our affairs and that he might comfort your hearts. Paul mentions this very familiar person to the believers at Ephesus. And he declares his state, who he was. Paul was accustomed often to accompanying a, a commendation for a person with a prayer and an acknowledgement of something that they were. He calls him a faithful minister in the Lord. Paul was making reference to our spiritual guides, ministers who guide us and show us and teach us the truth. Paul really wanted the church at Ephesus to know his situation, not to draw attention to himself, but that they might know how to better pray for him. Folks, let me encourage you to start a habit of praying for other ministers of the gospel. Make it a part of your prayer life to pray for other churches that are preaching the truth. Some of you have told me, I know you pray for me, and I appreciate it greatly, and I need it. Please, whatever you do, don't stop. But also realize that there are ministers all over this world who are preaching the true gospel. Some of them are unknown by anyone else, and yet they're going day after day after day, and they're preaching the gospel, and they're putting that whole armor of God on every single day. Paul mentions Tychius so that they might be able to see that there's another faithful minister. Paul would have been appalled if he would have thought that I'm the only minister of the gospel. I can't say this for certain, but Paul, as the author of so much of the New Testament, could be tempted in his flesh to say, you know, I'm the author of a lot of the New Testament. 
I would imagine that Paul's testimony, if we ever get to speak to him in that way, would never be, yeah, I wrote quite a bit of the New Testament. I'm quite proud of that, those documents. He's always pointing to other faithful ministers. And in this new church age where everything's a competition, may it never be that we use the gospel as a competition, that if the gospel is being proclaimed and Jesus Christ is being exalted and elevated, that we pray for that ministry. And we say, listen, those are faithful ministers there. Now, if they're not preaching Christ, we can't pray for falsehood. But we can certainly pray for faithful ministers. Paul calls him a beloved brother. And he said, I've sent unto you, I sent him unto you for the same purpose that you might know our affairs. And then Paul, as he brings this to a close, he says, Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. I think every believer here today could say with Paul, well, that would, that's, that's what we want it to be. Peace to the brethren, love with faith, grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, there should be nothing more beautiful to you than to know that there are others around the world that love the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are not alone. And your warfare, your battle, you're not battling by yourself. Every believer is under spiritual attack. And yet Paul gives this in a way of a benediction. And as he often does, he uses that beautiful word, grace. We like the word grace here because we understand the true meaning of the word grace. Not some flimsy grace that's dependent upon me, but grace that's been given to me knowing even who I am. I still am a recipient of God's grace even though I'm still a sinner. I'm still a recipient of God's grace even though I'm not always what I need to be. For example, I'm not always the husband I need to be. I'm not, I was not always the son I needed to be. I'm not always proper as we looked about how we submit to those who are in authority over us. But his grace is always the same. And he identifies that, the, he says, grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Insincerity here is not so much about, I feel sincere. I love this. It's not about I feel sincere. It's loving the Lord Jesus Christ to everlasting. In other words, my love for the Lord is not just during this temporary stay here on this earth, but my love for the Lord Jesus Christ is eternal. You see, our emotions get in the way and say Paul is asking people to make a, take a vow of sincerity. That's not what Paul was asking. That's not what Paul was giving them. He was talking to them something that they would understand. This love of the Lord, this grace that we understand, this is for eternity. Folks, one of the greatest open secrets of all of Christianity is realizing, and you hear me say it, you've heard preachers say it, it's, it's become so cliched. This is not what it's about. This isn't the end of it. If we, if we could even just get a glimpse of what's awaiting us, it would encourage us and help us to endure what's here more than we do now. Because your mind can't grasp it. There's still a veil. You, we still can't see it all clearly yet, but one day we will see it clearly. And this 
in comparison will be absolutely nothing. And that doesn't make spiritual warfare less real. It's still there and it will be there. The believer lives in a world of evil, surrounded by evil powers and sadly by evil people. Don't ever allow yourself to believe that the world is a friend of God or more specifically, a friend of the grace of God. There's nothing hated more by the world than the grace of God. You and I love God's grace. The world hates it. You say, how can, a, how can people hate the grace of God? Because they don't know God. If you don't know God, you don't know grace. And if you don't know grace, you don't know God. They go together. The Christian life, Hebrews 12.1 tells us that the Christian life is a race that we're to run. 1 Timothy 6.12 and 2 Timothy 4.7 tell us that the Christian life is a battle to be fought. And this conflict will never be over until we leave this earth. The encouraging thing is you have the strength and the power to stand against any weapon and any attack that the devil puts. Right? You have, you have the weaponry. Not in yourself, but in God's strength. You are not contending, again, in, against physical opponents. You are contending in the supernatural realm. Mere humanity is not your enemy. <laughs> this is where the church has missed it. We've been fighting mortal men as if they're the real trouble and realizing why we were fighting men the spiritual battle kept raging, and it's, it's still raging. Mortal men will never be the real enemy. Our battle is against principalities and powers, rulers of darkness. What kind of things lies in even that supernatural realm? Lies, pride, idolatry, covetousness, lust, deceit, self-righteousness. That's why Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. Folks, right now we can leave today with the assurance that God, through His Word, has given us everything we need for the spiritual battle. It's the whole armor of God. It's not just a little sentimental Christian phrase here and there. That's not going to get you anywhere. You can post Bible verses all over your wall. That's not going to be enough. He said, you have to put on the armor of God. You have to re remind yourself that during every trial, every conflict, every temptation, realize I have been given everything I need to stand firmly in Christ against the wiles of the devil in the Word of God. Folks, that's why we make such a big deal about Scripture here. Somebody told me a story recently and he said, what does your church do? And I still love this answer. They said, we read a lot of Scripture. We talk about Scripture. We preach Scripture. We sing Scripture. Why? Because it is the armor of God. You don't need a poem for me today to make you feel flowery and good. You need the Word of God. That's what you need. And you leave here today with the Word of God saying, I have the armor of God with me everywhere I go. Knowing that I'm walking into a battle. Because you are, you're walking into a battle, but you have the armor of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time we've had today. And Lord, we know that we are dealing 
as we do each and every week, we're dealing with a serious matter. And Lord, I pray that, Lord, even though the world will do all it can to try to lessen, water down the truths of this demonic activity and satanic activity, we realize that the Word of God declares that this is very, very true. But Lord, we're also thankful to know that your sovereignty is never thwarted and you will never be defeated. And we as your children understand what we have before us and we have now been instructed on what we must do. Lord, help us never to rely upon ourselves or our own strength. Remind us daily that our battle is not against mankind. Our battle is against spiritual principalities and powers. And those can only be defeated by the word of God. Father, strengthen us for the journey ahead. And Lord, may this church be strengthened and encouraged and edified today. May we leave here rejoicing today if we are in the family of God, realizing that we can never be taken from you. But Father, our hearts are also burdened for those that may not be in Christ, that those that have not repented and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that the Spirit would be moving today and that souls would be converted. Lord, we know your word promises that not one will be left behind. But Father, that any who come to the foot of Jesus Christ will never be cast away, never be turned away. Father, we thank you and praise you for this time we've had. And it's in Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen. If you'll stand with me, let me give you just a quick word of Scripture and we'll be on our way. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, very fitting for what we've talked about today. Paul writes about these mighty weapons of warfare. 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says, Now I, Paul, myself beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with you with that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringeth into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Lord bless you. Thank you for being here today. Look forward to seeing you on Wednesday night. Thank you. Thank you.